Rosie's 10th birthday party was a mundane affair. There was a jumping castle and endless games and twister, musical chairs and pin the tail on the... Ugh. Whatever. She was bored. Rosie hated playing with the other kids. She just wanted to be alone. But alas, there were candles to blow out. The other kids jostled and shoved their way towards the birthday girl, which was of course just a political move to get closer to the cake. And in the fray, amidst the stray elbows and the happy birthday, a single decorative helium balloon was knocked free of its paperweight. No one but Rosie seemed to notice the balloon rise slowly, float, and then disappear into the Gatorade blue sky. And even if they did, thought Rosie, with a smile, there was nothing anyone could do to stop it. That was the day she decided to teach herself to fly. It wasn't so crazy. People taught themselves to swim, didn't they? That night before bed, Rosie jumped as high as she could five times. She did the same the next morning when she woke up and developed some hard and fast rules throughout the course of the day. No walking when you can skip, lots of protein for breakfast, and take staircases two or three steps at a time. She would do long jump in the sand pit at school at every opportunity. She would dream exclusively of flight, and she would write each new training method down on an ever-expanding post-it note titled, Daily Tasks to Learn to Fly. But by far the most unique, worrying, fraught, scary, strange, abominable of her training methods was this. Once a day, every day, building incrementally on the extremeness of the day before, Rosie would climb onto something and fall off of it as slowly as possible. The girl had diligence to match her ambition. She skipped everywhere, was constantly covered in sand from the long jump pit, and could be found most afternoons trying to delay her descent from tables and cupboards. Though she had tried twirling and running on air, Rosie felt the slowest when she flapped. The flying girl would tuck her thumbs under her armpits, calmly step off some two-meter-high furniture, and crank her elbows and knees up and down like a maniac. Rosie's dad nearly had a stroke when he walked into the living room one day and saw her flailing like this, off the top of a bookcase. He was absolutely beside himself when she took a full eight seconds to hit the ground. And he yelled and stamped his feet and gesticulated and inspected the bookcase for wires, but he was so confused and angry that very few words were actually formed. His punishment of no jumping for a while was equally incoherent. This was the beginning of Rosie's problems. As the result of her rigorous training, by the age of 15, Rosie could jump out of a third-story window and land comfortably on the ground 40 seconds later. Rosie could have broken all high, long, and triple-jump world records without a run-up. She could tackle most staircases 10 or 11 steps at a time. She could float for one whole minute. But undeniably miraculous feats on paper are sometimes unnerving when seen in the flesh. People did not take kindly to Rosie's burgeoning flight. They threw things at her. The other kids called her names like loser, weirdo, space cadet, geek. 
They called her Risky Rosie Nutcase and the Sandy Sandy Freak. And it wasn't just the kids. Adults condemned her from jumping. Her mum wailed every time she so much as bounded up a staircase. Her dad laid all the tall bookcases in their house on their side. Her floating impressed no one. And everybody she did it in front of told her, in no uncertain terms, to get her feet back on the ground where they belonged. Rosie felt like the whole world was grabbing at her ankles. She was ostracised by ostriches, damned and lectured and ridiculed by flightless birds. The flying girl had to train in secret to avoid all the hoo-ha. Rosie felt lighter, freer when no one was around, and as a 16th birthday present to herself, she decided to make a brand new post-it note. The Daily Tasks to Learn to Fly, Volume 2, would thereafter include the following rules. No skipping when you can hover. Plenty of protein for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Go up staircases without touching steps. She would float for as long as she could every night before bed, where she would read books about gravity and look for loopholes until the early hours of the morning. The whole scheme hit a wall when Rosie turned 18. Though she could now easily float and hover and jump extraordinary distances, it all lacked a certain power. The flying girl was using muscles that only she knew existed. She didn't really know how to train them. She lacked endurance, conditioning, a specific gym program. It upset Rosie, of course it did, to come so close and be so far. She hovered slowly and wobbly up and down the staircase with a hung head. Her mum came home right in the middle of this self-pitying rise and fall and reacted with typically confused anger. What? Hey, how are you? Do you stop that right now, young lady. You stop that and you never do that again or I'll tether your feet to the bloody oven! She screamed. Tether my feet to the oven? Laughed Rosie, incredulous. And then it gave her an idea. She went looking for some rope. At first, all the usual training was done weighed down by a pocket dictionary. She then graduated to a regulation thesaurus, and then an encyclopedia collection, and then three office chairs, and then the kitchen table. Over two years, she increased her resistance, leaping tied to a moped, falling off tall roofs, clutching an anvil to her chest, hovering up the stairs with the washing machine in tow. As her strength and confidence built, true flight became more and more achievable. And one day, deep inside her, she just knew that she was ready. Life on the ground had always been hard for Rosie. Nobody really understood her. It wasn't just the name calling or the scrunched paper missiles. Their ignorance ran far deeper than that. The flying girl was stuck to a world that did not get her did not like her, but for some reason, did not want her to leave. Rosie stood in her front garden. A gentle breeze brushed hair into her eyes. She noticed a few neighbours were watching on and self-consciously removed the cape 
she'd picked up from a costume shop for the occasion. Without any fanfare or ceremony, especially without the cape, she turned her attentions to the sky and flew. flight was everything Rosie had hoped it would be. It was the pinnacle of liberty, exquisite analogical, granting her surreal vision of a small world at peace. It felt like she was at the fun end of a kite for the first time in her life, like running, swimming and carnival rides all melted into one windy, at once light and heavy, like wading through honey, warm inside but cold with the wind, tiring, free, hard, solitary, infinite. Tears stained her cheeks as she flew ever forwards towards the curvature of the earth. Sea level can be a rotten thing after flying two long, helixed laps of the planet. Gravity, after losing its hold on you for a while, is spiteful, cruel. The ground pulls at you with a vengeance. The once ant-sized people become huge and mean. The whole world feels stuck. Public buses become a unique form of torture. Walking on anything feels like walking on hot coals, and sitting feels like God is pushing down on your bones. Rosie felt the weight of the universe when she sat back down on her front lawn. It was crushing. She was swept up and drowned by her mother's tidal waves of angry relief. The glares of neighbours and dog walkers and passers-by burnt holes straight through her flesh. Her stomach sloshed and nodded with a severe land sickness. She puked. Heaps. Rosie was hit so hard by life back on the ground that she regretted ever having flown at all. The pain took weeks to subside. She didn't know what to do. Because up there in the sky, Rosie learned 
what pilots dream of knowing. Flight, without wings or yokes, is a freedom we can't comprehend. Rosie had owned the sky. It belonged to her to cut and circle as she pleased. She was a balloon, that same balloon from her 10th birthday party, adrift and untouchable by those people on the ground, the angry ants, the ones that had never understood her. In her two laps of planet Earth, she had seen all manner of wonder and life. She'd soared above great canyons of red delight, swept plains of buttery Sahara, and ran her hand along the River Rhine. Rosie watched the Everglades from the clouds. She tore rings around great mountains and cried while the sun spewed purple cream over the Dead Sea. It was like wading through honey, warm inside but cold with the wind. It was tiring, infinite, never ending, never ending. Hard, lonely, so lonely, so infinitely lonely, so tiringly infinitely lonely, so terrifying. So unbearable. She didn't know what to do. Weeks later, Rosie lay on the grass and looked up. She watched the birds, happy for them, maybe a little jealous. Two inky magpies swooped each other in a high-flying game of tag, squawking as they rolled and twisted between the branches, perching for a moment or two before taking off again. And the magpies flew away, disappeared. But Rosie could still hear them, squawking from that mysterious, invisible place that only birds know how to find. And she just somehow knew in her brain that the birds were squawking about the silly little people below them and how they were cruel, loud, stuck to the ground. Risky Rosie wanted to join the birds, and so she stood. She had diligence to match her ambition. Rosie found her cape, and with considerably more fanfare and ceremony than the last time, on the inside at least, took off. Up she went. Then down she came, and she threw up a bit, and she wallowed for a while, and then she went back up, and still up and down she goes. Soaring over continents in an afternoon, tracing lazy figure eights through bright velvet clouds and spooking aircraft passengers for the fun of it, flying ever forward toward the curvature of the earth, before restoring her feet to the ground where, apparently, they belong. That was Risky Rosie Nutcase, episode three of These Stories Are Not Real. Loosely inspired by Nelly Furtado's Like a Bird. Loosely inspired. And yes, I've also got to update you about the whole prize situation, the listener rewards scheme that I uh, came up with off the cuff last week. There's going to be five very special, very cost-effective prizes up for grabs. I won't reveal what they are just yet, but they range from the sentimentally valuable to a $20 Westfield gift card. Anyone who sends a message, an email, or a DM into the show will go into the pool once. 
If you write a review of the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, you go in twice. If you share the podcast with another person and can prove it to me or convincingly lie, then you go in three times. So if you do all those things, if you get in touch, write a review and tell your friends about the show, you can get up to six entries into the prize pool for some very special prizes. Okay, episode four about foolish young love and the Beach Boys is coming out next week. Until then, I'll leave you with this reminder. It's a very brief reminder. I mean, it's really more of a public service announcement to just download your bird sounds from the internet. Don't try to get close to a magpie with a portable microphone in September. Magpies are on heat in September, and they'll get you. Thanks for listening. I'm like a bird, I wanna fly away. Okay, all right, good to be out in the field. Okay, come here, little fella, just make some... Huge mistake, huge mistake, huge mistake. <laughs>